0: Sorry if I'm not audible to anyone, I'm going to try and invest here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew Feeney, I'm a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, and it's my pleasure to introduce our lunchtime speaker, who is uh, Ronald Davis. Ronald Davis was appointed by U.S. States, uh, United States Attorney General Eric Holder in November 2013 as Director of the Cops Office of the United States Department of Justice. In December 2014, 2014, President Obama appointed appointed Director Davis Davis to serve as the Executive Director of the the newly created President's Task Force of 21st Century Policing, which produced a report earlier this year. Prior to to serving as COPS Director, Davis served eight years as Chief of Police police of East Palo Alto and 20 20 years years with the Oakland, uh, California Police Department. Davis is the co author of the Harvard University and National Institute of Justice publications, Race Policing An Addendum for Action and Exploring the Role of Police in Prison Reentry. He, he is co author of the DOJ publication, How to Correctly Collect and Analyze Racial Profiling Data, Your Reputation Depends on It. Please join me in welcoming Director Davis.
1: So I, 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 hear I hear a echo. echo. So, uh, so, so let's it twice, twice the at the same time. time. Maybe we, we can switch, switch the, the hand, hand up, Mike. Right? That's off. Possibly. How's, How's everyone, everyone doing, doing in the meantime? OK. okay. And and I'm competing for sandwiches, sandwiches, food, a, a rainy day, day so see we'll keep, keep it awake. Here we go. Thank,
2: Thank you, sir. Can we get
1: this one? Can you guys hear me better? OK. So, first, let me uh, thank, thank the Cato Institute for inviting me to present to you. Um, it's a great opportunity to talk about some of the issues that are, are facing American policing at this time. So, I found the issue if I may start, of uh, in my, my introduction, you heard that I have close to 30 years, years of law enforcement experience. Uh, spent I spent 20, 20 years in Oakland, went to went Oakland to and left there as a captain to become <laughs> police chief in the great city of East Palo Alto, the smallest city in the Bay Area. Uh, great city, but also very diverse, very challenging issues of crime and violence. And my experiences in Oakland and in East Palo Alto helped shape my concept of community policing and why I'm here today. Um, When I look at the the purpose of today's meeting or convening, when I look at the brochure we have a flyer that talks about American policing. And I'm looking at this today, there's a few minutes where we're looking at press conferences in Chicago, developments about shooting investigations, where we're at in American policing, the challenges we're facing at this very moment, but more importantly, what are the opportunities that we have moving forward. So before I get into where we're at at this a very critical moment, I, think, I always want to start with where we've come from and where we're at. So I always start with a positive before we get into the challenges. I don't know I don't you were used the word negative because it may not be a negative as much as it is as a challenge. So when I became a cop in 1985, which is now 31 years ago, never, if my math is correct, um, we are in a different place in American policing than 31 years ago. When I sat in my academy classroom, just the diversity of the classroom looked different. There was very little diversity, both race and gender. The things we were taught, the expectations, the program, the policies, the practices were vastly different. I recall getting into a police car in 1985 thinking just how high tech this car was because it had a little computer in it, which was about this thick, right? And if you recall, this is even before cell phones, and if you had need a cell phone, it was in a bag that you carried on a strap and looked like you were still pretty much a master, you pulling out the big phone. And when I went to a vice unit about 1988, we really got advanced. And we got to say it was pretty interesting technology, it was really high tech. And you had to get a credit check to get it to the device. It was called a Pinkerton. Do you guys remember that? And it was really high tech at the time. young people here, but for those who got some years on, but if you look at where we're at now, before I left the industry, I looked at one of my police cars, it looked like a cockpit of a 747. I look at my daughter's iPhone and iPad, and she's 13, and we can communicate, unfortunately, to anyone in the world. And so, if you look at policing over the last 30 years, we know that we've made a lot of investment. With community policing, we know we're having evidence base. we know we have more diversity in the field, and I think the field has advanced greatly. However, if we're going to be candid, if we're going to be rural, we have to recognize that not all of that is positive that a lot of communities have been left behind and that some of our strategies have had devastating effects in communities, especially our communities of color. Whether it's mass arrest policy for the 90s, whether it's a war or crime, whether it's sentencing, focuses on putting people in jail for 30, 40 years for non-violent offenses, we have engaged in practices and policies that have had collateral damages to many of our communities. So if you get ready for this policing in America, policing in the 21st century, we must remember that and take heart to the idea that we made advances. We have a new generation of officers that I think are more analytical, more intelligent, more stronger, the more diverse, but we have a lot of reconciliation to do, quite frankly. And so we look at where we're at. We look at whether it's Ferguson, whether it's New York, whether it's Chicago, Baltimore. A lot of people are saying, is this an increase in police conduct? Is this a larger divide between the American people with race? And I would offer that I don't think it necessarily is, that the advent of technology, with social media, we're starting to reveal and uncover a tension that has been existing in many our communities for a very long time. A tension based on policy, based on practices, based quite frankly on a role that law enforcement has played in communities of color, going back to the 50s and 60s and enforcement distributory discriminatory laws, also known as Jim Crow laws. So we know the role that law enforcement has played, and we need to reconcile for that and adjust to that. But as we move forward and we start seeing these high-profile incidences, I think they're reminding that we have this similar intention. It, it makes me think, think we used I, I thought of an analogy today, I heard someone say that it somehow was bad over the last couple of years. And i thought of an analogy made a house with termites, in the sense that the termites could be here for a while, eating at the root in the foundation of your house. And if some a carpenter goes there and puts up, fixes something in your house, they did then discovered that the termites is there. You didn't say that everything was OK until the carpenter got there is false. It was not OK. You just didn't know. We didn't pay attention. We would have the issue of disparity in race similarly, eating at the foundation of our democracy for a very long time, but many of us have been blind to the reality and to the symptoms. Now we're pulling back layers We're forced to take a look at the reality and challenges, and quite frankly, the moral obligation and opportunity to use this and policing in a democratic society. So the backdrop for policing right now is not simply crime violence. We have an opportunity to redefine public safety in this nation. And under the new definition of public safety cannot just be the absence of crime. It must include the presence of justice. Simply getting statistics crime reduction is insufficient and bringing very little solace to communities. That who's, who are that's kind of an end result of a bit of the tactics that we use. And so we must find a now to use evidence to use science to engage communities, to build trust, so that we can have a stronger nation. And when we and we're, talking we're talking about community policing, we're not just talking about robberies and, and, and the tragedies of murders and crime, we're also talking about national security. So how do we do this? How do we proceed forward? What would should the a play? of And this it policing in a democratic society. One of the first questions that we have to come up with is what is the role of police in a democratic society? I think back to the old that I took 30 plus years ago, and I think about the oath where it talks about protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States. That means, as a police officer, I, I like to be considered a constitutional advocate—one advocate. protects, one who advocates, one who protects and defends the Constitution. Crime involves people have the right to live in safety and without fear but you can't attack it to the point that you want to compromise the very oath that we took, which is to protect and defend the Constitution. So, so constitutional police should be the basis of policing in a democratic society. We need to identify the world because if we keep targeting law enforcement as being responsible and solely responsible for crime and violence in our communities, then you're basically saying that the only place to address the largest source of issue is with a hammer. And you know the phrase, all you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. So we must take responsibility as communities. It's our responsibility, it's your responsibility when crime goes up and you spice crime. Work it together. Sir Robert Gill is the of modern day law enforcement. And he has ten principles of the police. One of is that the police are the public, and the public is the police, are the police. The police are just ones who are getting paid to facilitate. And so we have a role play as police officers uh, facilitating, but it's only joint. In depth, we say we, be policing, we, we must be, be co producers of the public safety. If we are, then we respond to crime spikes in a different way. We don't require officers to start increasing arrests because we know that arrest is not going to resolve the situation. If we are co producers, we start looking at the root cause of crime. We start looking at how to solve crime, the social economic conditions, the disparities limit our communities, jobs, public health. We start looking at violence and disease. And it is spread very similar to the blood pathogen: at the behavior social networking. And how do you interrupt intervene that social network? How do you stop the disease from spreading? Not by cutting off limbs, but by treating behavior, contain and, and educate. So we know that we have things to do. In response to Ferguson, many of the cases recall in 2014, President Obama put together a task force of 20% of the police. Now, I had honor services that task force. And here's what I thought was very special about this task force. One, the president comprised of external stakeholders. So these were not members of the federal government. These were a very diverse group of individuals. 11 amazing people. We had a police commissioner, the coach here that has 45 years of experience, that's Chief ranch from Philadelphia. We had done for fresh off the demonstration lines in Ferguson New York. With Brittany Packley and Jose, uh, I'm to get in trouble. Lopez, thank we you. We had civil rights you. attorneys who introduced themselves by saying, "My name is Tommy White. I just to be LA for a living." We had academics who've done years of research. We had former leaders within the federal government. So we know we had a very diverse group, ranging from police to civil rights to community to academia to come together in 90 days to come up with recommendations to start this discussion provides some tenable recommendations on how police and communities are coming together so that we can build the trust necessary to mm-hmm. enhance public safety. And so the group work for 90 days. So let me tell you, so I hope the had a to see the report. And the report provides what I would call 59 tenable recommendations on how to improve the relationship, how to enhance transparency, how to fight crime and violence using evidence-based strategies that do not apply the damage that we talked about. But in addition to the recommendations, I think, I think the process, the to process, me, is something, is something that we, we should not ignore and that we can follow within our own communities. And this is where I think the federal government sort of plays a very strong role in, in the leadership. The executive leadership, the a task force, and to show that it brings bring diverse people together, that even with the diverse views, that they can build consensus around some investors of their community. And so, locally, we think that that's one of the ways to respond, that we bring diverse constituencies together, we talk about the issues, we build consensus, you can implement the recommendations for the best interest of public safety communities. So the task for smart, has been successful. Now have the recommendations. The question that is asked at hand is, what do you do with it? How do we implement it? How do we basically encourage the field to adopt? Because the American police system is very key than any other system in the world. His strength is a challenge, and that's pretty common across the board. His strength is that it's close to 16,000 unique police departments. It's challenge is 16,000 individual police departments. Ranked from a majority of them being less than 50 officers to 50 or 60 of them supervised on a covering city to the size of a half million or larger. So, how do we make sure? How do we make sure that an agency that has two deputies? can have access to the research and the policies and the task force, the same as NYPD with 40,000 that it has a research component, a planning division, and an analyst, and everything else. This is where we need to come together. It is not the goal the task force, not the goal of, the of the police, but to concept of building a national body of knowledge so that like any other profession, whether you're a lawyer or you're a doctor, that you have a national body of knowledge that you should be held accountable for, that you have an evidence and science behind you that we do go harm first, that it's part of the community, that it's work the community to make our nation safe, and you do it tailored to and led by local leaders that are elected to oversee the police department. system is the best in the world, but we have to protect, we have to basically nourish it, we need to make sure that we provide the resources necessary to do that. At this point, I'm giving a signal that's too my I'm giving a signal because I, I had 30 minutes of talk to you and I figured, you didn't want to hear me giving a 30 minutes speech otherwise uh, falsely believe. So I wanted to present what the council office does and just talk about it for a second and then over to the questions so you guys can fire My office right now, the council office, in addition to overseeing and really administering, help to administer the task. Force, we didn't oversee the task, force, which the coaches did, but being a part of the task is giving the front seat to what I call the front seat history. We're also a grant component where we support local law enforcement, local state and tribal law enforcement through grants, through training, technical assistance, my, my good friend, Sam Walker, was over there meet some of our reports in Philadelphia, the Las Vegas, the San Diego. We believe that we can provide continuing services that help the field advance the field. Not that we can dictate from D.C. As I got to D.C., I shared with a lot of my colleagues, I searched the building, I looked through the rooms, I looked into the closets, I looked through the desks, and I found no magical answers. They do not exist in the D.C. They exist right here at these tables. They exist with the ranked fellows out there every day doing their job. They exist with the chief of the work of the community. Our job is to support it, to lift it up, to put the evidence behind it, so that it can be replicated by those 16,000 individual agencies. And so that's what my agency does, and I love the job we have. With that, let's open it up. If you don't have questions, you've got to switch to a speech. Yes, sir. I appreciate what you've said about our
2: job be. Public safety. Uh, When I started in 1974, my job was 100% public safety. The trouble is, today, our profession is dealing so much with personal safety. The personal safety of Whitney Houston, a Snoop Dogg, a Willie Nelson, Charlie Sheen, that sort of thing. You had 1.4 million arrests last year for simple possession, which is really protecting the individual from their own stupidity. How, in your opinion, is the war on drugs, this modern prohibition, helping police community relations? Uh, thank you for the question. So I think it would be fair to say that you've heard
1: that, and obviously from the administration and in my personal opinion, that one, the war on drugs did not work. This is failure. Two, that the collateral damage that it causes has why we are suffering from many strained relationships in our community because it has had, candidly, let's be real, a very disparate impact on communities of color. And I think even from a pragmatic point of view the investment from the taxpayers has not been yielded as returns. return. So if you were just looking from a strictly programmatic business and the return on investment is not there. We know that the incarceration rates are now uh, excessively high. We know that the incidence rates are excessively high. We know that the cost of incarceration can be from fifty to 7000 a year, but for a treatment program that would address the substance abuse, maybe four or 5000 We know that once... A young person introduced to the criminal justice system, the <laughs> likelihood of graduating or remaining grows exponentially. So I, I think we have to realize that if we look at policing in the 21st century, that we are engaging in those evidence-based strategies that do not rely on having enforcement, they rely on changing cultures, norms within the community, they rely on building strong communities, healthy communities, it relies on people working together. And it also allows evidence-based strategies. So that maybe instead of incarceration, there may be restorative justice. Instead of incarceration, there may be uh, treatment, there may be mental health courts, veteran courts, drug courts that provide alternative than filling up prisons at a cost. And I think <laughs> that's the cost right now—something like $80 billion we spend on incarceration. 5% of the population further heard the president talk about the Senate. 25% of the people incarcerated the, the world. They may know the world 5% of the population. So we know we have to change. And the great thing is, this is a very good moment. This is that defining moment because we have a very bipartisan—I wouldn't say not support that we recognize that these policies, despite their good intentions, are ineffective, they're inefficient, and they're having damage. So this is an opportunity to advance some of those changes on how we enforce laws, whether they're not about drug offenses, whether there are alternatives to that, whether they're even about crimes how long people stay in jail. Yes.
2: Uh, my name is Alan, Alan Davis. I'm a retired uh, NYPD, not with a group called Strategies for Youth. Uh, my question involves the police role. Uh, it seems to me from listening to all the things that we've heard today that it's it really based on uh, police perceptions of how they should respond to some of the challenges they face and public uh, reaction to those, those choices. And my question is, uh, in your opinion, which has privacy, which at the end of the day who had the final sense? Is it going to be law enforcement or the citizens, the community, the people who bear the ground, the police administration? Right. right. It's, it, 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 I thought I'd have your question at the, the table, table, but you got it on the
1: podium. We <laughs> <laughs> were having, having conversations conversation beforehand. I, I think I, I, it's it's, it's, the it's, it's the toughest question that most police chiefs will, will tell you that they, they can answer. Because, because we, we preach about, about coming to the, the table, table as too many policing, policing but what, what does that mean? That mean? And rural community-based early earlier, should be co-producers of public safety, which means community policing has to extend beyond the meeting. Simply meeting and talking about things is a great start, but it's not substantive by itself. And so the question is, who has the priority? Now, and I would rephrase it to: where co-producers, we have defined goals. roles. So the first role as co-producer is to work together to identify the priorities within a community, right? And I think the community is, is the foundation, is the basis. And as a police chief, as I told my officers, that's why we're there, is to serve the community. The community's not there to serve us. They're there to work with us, to partner with us, right, to hopefully share the experiences with us, but we're there to serve them because your buddy is paid our salaries. plain and simple. But if we identify together the priorities, we should even go further to identify how we're going to respond. But like the executive or any kind of relationship, once we determine what we work together, the police have enough expertise to then administer that program, that strategy, and they may have some some statutory requirements or some other priorities that could override. But that shouldn't be very it should not really be a common practice. And so I think if I were asking the law in the short way is the community should have priority because it's the community is the way they're serve. And the community in making the priority decision should it, should it really take it to heart the recommendations and the input of their police department, your police department. You live in a district, it's your chief. Whatever the case is going to be is that you guys work together to identify it and then respond. If you don't, then you're simply the recipient of services, which means you're then receiving it, and then you're positioned to only evaluate it, which makes you a long-term critic, but that's still your partner. And I think what we want to get to is we need to scrutinize law enforcement. As a cop, I will <laughs> tell you this, this is an interesting thing that comes up a lot, and I to make this clear for the record. Police officers in general, the overwhelming majority of them, are not afraid of public scrutiny. They're not afraid of accountability. They're not afraid of the community. They're not afraid of, the not afraid of the cameras, right? With what they want is what you and I want is fairness and consistency. And with what they want is strong partners to work with them and to address public safety, but also understand that today is one of the toughest jobs in a, in a, in a democratic society, is, is to, to be an American, American police, police officer. That it doesn't mean we don't account. It doesn't mean that we critique the systems of the practices of the policy. It doesn't it mean, mean that we reject disparate treatment of, of, of communities. It doesn't it mean, mean that we don't question the strongest thing the to can do, which is use force to for people. We have more no obligation to do that. But it doesn't mean that we just our law enforcement officers. So we, we should have a partnership. But
2: the community should have Yes, Yeah, My name is Peter Bishop. I'm with the Washington Ethical Society. Uh, as a philosopher, when I started uh, witnessing the things that led to your task force, and I sat back and started, and our community started uh, uh, demonstrating uh, in support of, uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement, and that was questions. The key issue in my mind is I said, Well, why are we having this problem? Because here we are at the Cato Institute where we like the Constitution. I said, Look, there's a principle in the Constitution that there should be equal protection under the law. And that if we actually had equal protection under the law, it looked to me as if all these events could not be happening. And that that these events were a symptom that we had done an inadequate job of realizing. The constitutional requirement of equal protection under the law, which is key that goes back to Kant's principle of universalizability, which is very, very important that every law needs to be applied equally to every single person. Now, so far, I haven't heard anyone say anything about that in this country so far. uh, I I was very pleased to hear President Obama talk about this in the early days after Ferguson. Uh, I'm sure he's mentioned this to you. Uh, I was wondering if you could just comment. About the equal protection. So, I mean, that's the heart
1: and soul of our democracy, correct? And and I think here's where the challenge comes in when we talk about equal protection. You were talking about whether or not the symptoms are revealing that that may not be occurring. So there's a couple things that are occurring, and I think we have to have the ability, the fortitude, the the internal, the intestinal fortitude to talk about it is we still are as a nation of our opinion, and still struggling with the challenges of race. Right, it will probably be a perpetual challenge for many years if not our lifetime. But we still have to talk about it. Unfortunately, too often, we talk about it as a us versus them. Either the person is racist heard or they're heard. not. If the cop shot the black person, then it must be racist, troll or racist. And I think what we're seeing now, research and science is showing us a couple of things are happening in many of our communities. That we as people, as human beings, have implicit biases that can affect the decisions we make. And we all have them. No one's exempt from white, black, male, female, Spanish, it doesn't matter. We have these implicit biases. And if we're not aware of that, then life experiences, however limited they are, can help shape opinions and subconscious views, which then goes into why you use tactics in one neighborhood versus another. The, the other part is you have systems that have been in play for. Generation and policing; those systems need to be changed, and because those systems are still so are resulting in good officers having bad outcomes. And so, when we talk about certain things, you, you, the question I think the policing has to ask is: Is the violation the same everywhere? And, and so, if, if I'm a young African American, American male standing, standing on the corner at two o'clock in the morning, does that mean something, or does it mean something, something different, if different if I'm a male white standing in Georgetown at two o'clock in the morning? And how do we address both of us at the same time? What are the assumptions made in each of those scenarios? How do we engage that person to ensure that it's equal protection? And well, if you know you're points to adjust officers, officer, because the response would be, is if we put cops in the crime list, and we know there's a spare crime we in in many of our bar- impoverished neighborhoods that have, that not have to be, that are in many cases, opportunities of color. But if it put cops there for a hotspot, spot, then why does it have to be the only thing that you're searching here are cops? Why not search jobs? services, mental no health, treatment, education. That's the search. If you search just a police officer, then you will have a disparate outcome with regards to the individual people enforcement of the law. But it will have an overall disparate outcome, which means it includes legitimacy. So I think your foundation is 100% right that you should start with the notion that all women are free to eat. that we should do that, we should also acknowledge that even if we look at individual cases, we still have to spread out these neighborhoods, which means in many cases, if you're increasing the amount of enforcement, it, this is not just that you're stopping people. You're taxing them through fines and penalties. You're basically making that they can't walk your street without being stopped and proceed to And we know that that doesn't make a sense. So, so, I think your principles are right in the sense that we need to make sure that, that we are looking at the Fourth Amendment to remember, make sure that it is for protection, that we do recognize the search and the laws of we should be doing stops, and that we have the ability to solve problems by not stereotyping neighborhoods but by helping neighborhoods, so that, that makes sense. Yes. Yes.
0: Janice Walt Grenadier, I started a group Pro Se
2: America to be the Yang to the Yang of the American Bar Association, and our young officers they get trained and whatnot, their first appearance into a courtroom, they get a judge who's corrupt. They get a judge who's ruling on bias, favoritism, cronyism, and financial gain who has met with either the prosecuting attorney the day before, or the other side,
1: had lunch or dinner, had something purchased for him, and the decision is made. And it doesn't matter what the officer does or says in that courtroom, because the decision was already made.
2: Our judges
1: are not being policed. They're policing
0: themselves. And how can we
2: expect them to do their job when they know they're not going to be appreciated in the
1: courtroom? So, so great, great question. that answers this way. One. Is I think, I think you hear the, the president talk about, I think we're all recognizing that what we're looking for right now is criminal justice reform. So it's not just policing. We have to look at the entire criminal justice system from policing, prosecution, to the magistrates, to judges, to corrections. And so I think the idea would be that there are probably flaws and corruptions and systematic failures in each part of this criminal justice system. This is one of the things that cause cops to get a little bit stressed. Because they didn't get any blame for every part of the system because they're the, the most public, public face system. But, but going to other things, things, this is what I'll end with that was the last question is the American police officer, I'm gonna put him hammer in general idea, are resilient and they don't have the luxury to decide not to do their job or to do their job based on what other <inaudible> parts of the system does or does not do, based on whether people are criticizing <laughs> them or them. The American police officer in the twenty-first century. Will go out every day, and his or their job we should be to the best of their ability, and if the system's not working, then advocate and change that. But if it's two o'clock in the morning in a particularly neighborhood—that's relevant. They need to do what they're going to do. And if we proceed forward and talk about police, whether they are talking about police reform, whether they are talking about police as conduct, whether we're talking about the need to change, to even advance, the conversation must include co duty. It must include accountability on all sides of the equation. The entire system, and it should respect the officers as being public service, which is to doing a great job, and that they are trying to serve. We know we they're not doing their job, job because unfortunately we still see one get assaulted every several hours, one dies every 36 hours, where we realize that we, have, we should provide support. But I will leave with this challenge. This moment, we have an opportunity to advance police more than I've seen in my last 30 years. This moment, we have crisis that is a great opportunity. And some kind of, it's is a whole bunch of people will take credit for the sayings about, you know, a crisis is a great opportunity, over small windows of opportunity. But I would say you this. Amid crisis, there is a small window of opportunity to advance. But the window is small and it closes very fast. And, and once the window closes, what ends up happening happen is a large door opens up that leads to passive states. And we find ourselves going backwards, right, right to the important time that led us to the problem to begin with. So, so why this window was open is not just for the police to open the window; is for you, me, the police, the system, communities, everyone to take advantage and realize that needs to be co-produced with public safety. That if police are the public, public are the police, and that we need to come up with systems and practices that enhance our public safety, protect our national security, without. The cloud damage of losing trust and legitimacy in all of our communities, especially most of our communities. With that, thank you very much for your time.
2: We really appreciate
1: it. We look forward to working with you.